1: You are listening to Cthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Cthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin MacLeod. Hello, and welcome to the Cthonia podcast, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Uh, my name is Breach Burke. I'm your host. And, um, let me fix my microphone here. I had uh, a had battery battery failure this morning, so I have to make sure that I uh, have this, uh, have everything set up right. Um, today, we're going to continue the Matrika series, and we are going to talk about Brahmi or Brahmani, uh, as she's sometimes known. Uh, and this particular goddess is the Shakti of the god Brahma, the creator god of the universe. Now, uh, Brahmi is one of those goddesses that... Um, has not, she doesn't have really a whole lot of story associated with her. Um, she is, like I said, she is mentioned like the other Matrikas in the Chandipat, um, but she is not, um, you know, but there's no there's no particular, um, say, Vedic story or in the Puranas that they give any kind of account of Brahmi as an individual. She tends to be worshipped as one of the Matrikas, as Matrikas as a group rather than, um having a you know a particular temple to Brahmi, for example, on her own. Um I think that's possible I think there is maybe one example of a Brahmi temple. Um but or a temple where she is at least installed as a kind of um, deity. And I believe they say the image is in a in a cave. But um but generally speaking her role is to be the um is to be the Shakti of Brahma. Now as is true with the other Mahavid- I'm sorry not the Mahavidyas, the Matrikas Um, she's not the spouse of Brahma. Saraswati is the spouse of Brahma. Um, Now that said, uh, Brahmi as a Shakti is also associated with learning, with wisdom, with education. So that actually makes her akin to Saraswati. So even though she's not technically his wife, um, those qualities of learning Are definitely part of Brahmi's nature, and one of the reasons in which a person might appeal to her or might, um, you know, magically, you know, people who practice tantric magic might actually appeal to her for help with, say, a creative project or school, you know, schooling or something to do with education uh, or something like that. Okay. Um, Because there's no real set mythology connected to Brahmi, other than the fact that she is a Shakti. Um, what I want to do is, I'm gonna, first of all, I'm going to talk about, uh, I'm going to mention her iconography, you know, how she's described. I'm going to read to you the, the very small piece in the Put that refers to her, and then we're going to look at some of her different attributes and what they mean um, in the manner of uh, of amplifying them. That's a that's a very Jungian term, if, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, amplification means taking a particular symbol that appears. And usually in a therapeutic sense that would mean, um, okay, if you had a dream about a white car, okay, well, there's there's the amplification process. Okay, so, um what do white you know, what what do what does white symbolize? What do cars symbolize? Um, you know, in, in more general terms, what do they symbolize to you? Do they have any kind of particular um association that you have with them or a particular incident or feeling that you have with them and then and then you kind of move outward um to the ideas of of idea of driving okay you're going somewhere you're on a journey whiteness okay well that has to do with um perhaps ideas of purification or light or release or you know so you know what i mean that's that's what we call amplification amplification allows you to um kind of explode in a way the the symbol to see you know, what else is, uh, you know, what what other associations might be relevant. Now, obviously, we're not doing this in a therapeutic context, but um, if we want to look back, if we want to kind of get a sense of, um, you know, the complexity of the Shakti and what, uh, you know, what kind of, um, maybe what kind of powers or siddhis that she represents or what kind of, um, you know, um, you know what you know what you know what kind of force she brings to bear what you know but what aspect of you know pure consciousness or pure energy that she represents um there's you like like with the other matrikas as well there's there's a sense that um you know we have you know we have different um you know, there's 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 all there's different um, there's different qualities that they have, and each of those qualities come to bear usually in a singular sense. Like I said, when these matrikas attack, um, they they are attacking as a group, um, but they but they're they're dealing with different aspects and different things. Just as we have different vices, and we have different or um, well, the asuras who approach represent different kinds of conflicts or struggles the way that the, the Shaktis respond, or the Matrikas, um, is usually a counter to that particular, um, you know, w- whatever that particular difficulty is, uh, you know, vice, struggle, conflict, or thought. So, okay. Um, so let's, let's talk about her iconography first. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. Uh, this says that she is depicted yellow in color and with four heads. Uh, by the way, Brahma has four heads, so this, of course, shows her as being kind of the female aspect of Brahma. She may be depicted with four or six arms. Like Brahma, she holds a rosary or a noose and a, a kamandalu, which is a water pot. Okay, If you have, do puja, you know that there's a very specially kind of shaped water pot that, um, that kind of flutes upwards and then there's kind of a curved um, mouth to it that comes over. Um, I have one that's brass, but they they could be made out of other uh, materials as well. Um, She also may have a lotus stalk or bells, vedas, and trident, and is seated on a hamsa, which is usually identified with a swan or a goose. Um, And I think in the uh, chandi, she's usually seen as riding on a swan, uh, um, as her vahana or or mount. She's also seated on a lotus with the hamsa on her banner. She wears various ornaments and is distinguished by her basket-shaped crown called Karanda Mukuta. She is shown riding a white swan um, as here uh, Vahana. Okay, so this was a, there must have been an illustration uh, of her. Um, now, there's a few things here that we want to talk about then. Um, and now let me read to you from Chandi very quickly, because this also fits in. Um, now, in the similar scene that I was reading to in the last couple episodes, um... <clears throat> there is the uh um you know here's where the the matrikas uh, come in um you know kali is is attacking the um the demons uh, with her pike and then um it says um kamandalu dalaksepa hataviran Hatojasa, brahmani okay let's Okay, I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm accenting that correctly because I'm just sort of reading this uh, straight up from the book. Um, creative energy is how she is described. Brahmani is described as creative energy here. That's how it's translated. And it says, creative energy sprinkled water from her begging bowl. Now, they're calling it a begging bowl rather than, uh, they're calling the kamandalu as a, a begging bowl, but it's actually a water pot. Um, on a group of thoughts, and on whomever the water fell, his vitality and valor were destroyed. Now, okay, that's interesting. Um, first of all, she's described as the Shakti of creative energy, and she fights demons by pouring water on them, okay? And he, they're calling it, rather than the the sort of ritual pot, they're referring to it as a begging bowl. Um, and that may also be meaningful here in the sense of... Um, you know, the, the beggar is one who may, be, who may be empty, you know what I mean? When we tend to be, in, in the Eastern sense, when we talk about emptiness, um, we're talking about that state of where we don't attach ourselves to anything. So in a sense, the beggar bowl can represent that kind of non-attachment. Okay, and um, the water, water is one of the big motifs that we want to look at here. Pouring water um, on this troop of of thoughts and demons in order to destroy their vitality now because we think of water as kind of a life-giving thing so we want to examine we want to kind of amplify the idea of water um, we also want to think about the fact that she's associated with the color yellow if you recall in um, the Mahavidya podcasts we talked about Bagalamukhi. Bagalamukhi is also the crane goddess so well she doesn't actually look like a crane but the name means Bhagalan means crane um is uh she also is associated with the color yellow. Yellow is associated with Vishnu, but also with Brahma. Okay. Um, And that may be a solar reference. Okay. But there is a few other um, associations with yellow. Um, And the fact that she's also got the rosary, they said she, regardless of how she's depicted, she always has that water pot or begging bowl or whatever you want to call it. And a rosary, um, which are very Orthodox Brahmin kind of um, ritual items. Okay, so they have to do with um, reciting mantra. I mean, because what you use your rosary for, your, or your mala? Is you uh, you use it to count and, and recite your mantra? Um, and here she is. We see her with her rosary and her water pot, and using the water pot to destroy demons. Now, so this is this is this is sort of a, in a way she's using it as an act of violence. So using these religious symbols in an act of violence. Okay, for towards the ashuras, um, which is. Uh, which which also could be loaded with connotation, okay? Now, remember we had said that the Matrikas each have to do with a vice, and in this case, and this is the other aspect of her that I'm going to want to talk about, that she personifies the vice of pride, okay? So um, so Brahmi has to do with pride, um, and so the question is like, oh, that's interesting. Now, one one obvious thing, and it's mentioned in the ferocious book, um, it says that Brahma himself, while he's not arrogant, he does portray this kind of haughtiness from time to time, as they describe it, like, you know, the old Brahmin grandfather who acts like he, you know, who, who maybe justifiably in a way acts like he knows it or knows it all. So, so Brahma can have this. There, there's they, there's one notable scene where he argues with Vishnu and Shiva about who's the greatest of the three of them because they are the tridevas. They are the um, the three, the creator, the, the preserver, and destroyer. Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Okay. And um, and also her, you know, both Brahma and Brahmi, um, they, they have this sense of distance to them. So in this, this piece from Chandi, she's flying over and she's pouring water on the demons. So she doesn't have a weapon in her hand in the sense of she's not, um, you know, kill, not shedding blood. Okay? She doesn't get her hands dirty. She doesn't shed blood. She kind of, in a way, stays aloof from everything other than pouring the water. So there's that sense of detachment, and we can also look at that, there there are gods that are associated with watching from afar. In particular, the Canaanite god El, who by the way is the, um, is really, they've said, you know, people have kind of traced the origins of Yahweh, say Yahweh is actually, um, you know, is actually El, the Hebrew version of El. Uh, we have talked about Yahweh's connection to Baal in terms of being a storm god, but Yahweh is also, um, in fact, if you read the, um, you know, the actual translations, um, one of my favorite translations of the Bible is the Interpreter's Bible, namely because you have, you know, translations sort of, you know, you've got various translations side by side in one text with all of the the um, annotation, and in the, um, which, which Bible, which I'm trying to think which one it was, was it the Anchor Bible? Um... I'm trying to remember now which which version it was. It's actually at my office, which I still can't go to because we still have COVID restrictions. We can't go back until I'm recording this now in late July and in like closer to mid August we're allowed to go back into our offices. But for right now, um, I'm still so I, I so I can't go back and re- pull the book off the shelf and remind myself. Um, but in any case, it's um, you know where the actual translation of of the Lord is L. Okay. And think about it. Elohim. Okay. The the Elohim is usually a plural in Hebrew, but it makes reference to the Lord and the company of the Lord. Okay. And this, this, this aspect of El, El is portrayed as a God who sits kind of apart in a tent, kind of watching like, you know, war or watching action from a distance from like a hill. Okay. What, you know, watching from afar. So that is, and, and and that is actually the quality of um, of godhood in the West. Um, there is a god who is transcendent, who is not part of the world, who stands apart from it. Okay, so there's that aspect of standing apart that we see both in Brahma and in Brahmi. You know, there's there's the involvement is you know, you know they're and they're not and they're considered more or less be benevolent gods, um, but they are, but they are observers. They are not as much participators. Now, if we think about this in a Taoist sense, okay, we think about yin energy, which is the feminine energy. Um, yin energy, um, one of its qualities is passivity, okay? We think of the yang force as being, you know, if you do I Ching and you, you know, uh, or, or read Taoist texts, the the, yin, the yang energy is active, okay? Um, that's the... the um, the method of doing. If you follow Thelamite, um I guess you could call it a.
0: Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers.
1: Pathology, um, you have Nuit, who stands for the passive energy, and then you have hadith as kind of, you know, the active force. Um, and then the, you know, there's the production of Rahor Kuit, who is the, um, the sort of crowned and conquering child, okay, kind of a Horace figure. So, um, yeah, so hadith becomes the really sort of the active principle there, um, usually represented by the priest in the Gnostic Mass, and then, of course, the the priestess who represents the more passive element, um, and yet is the potential and is the sort of the source of that. So in that also we can see a kind of uh, Brahmi kind of connection. Pardon me, I'm drinking my coffee this morning. Um, Okay, so now in terms of um, the, the grahas or the planets, Brahmi rules over Jupiter, also known as Braspati or Guru. Uh, that's the um, uh, Sanskrit terms for Jupiter. And both of them have to do with um, wisdom and learning. Okay, when you think about the Guru, Guru really means teacher. Okay? Um, and Braspati is another name. Braspati is the actual Guru for the gods, um, there are two, um, the, uh, Braspati ends up being the, um, the guru for the devas and Shukra ends up being, whose Venus ends up being the, um, the guru for the, asuras. Uh, Ashuras. Okay. So they both have gurus, they both have teachers, but Shukra or Venus, um, has to do more with material and sensual life and, and, and material abundance. And thus, you know, she is teaching the Ashuras that those kinds of ways, Whereas Jupiter Guru, you know, is more about, um, you know, pure learning, um, you know, the Vedas, you know, ritual practices, mantras, you know, more, um, more of what we traditionally would think of as religious um, iconography. And so in that sense, um, there's, there's that association there. Um, so again, when we, you know, with her holding the water pot and the rosary, you definitely have this idea of kind of almost religious orthodoxy, um, which is interesting. Okay, so let's let's talk about some of these symbols. Where do we want to start? So much, so much to choose from. Actually, for for a uh, for a for a goddess who really does not have a whole lot of story behind her. Um. Okay, so let's think about the. Um, okay, let's talk about the yellow color first. Um. Okay, so if I go back to my the symbolism of Bagalamuki, Okay, who was the member who was the paralyzer? She's the one who paralyzes the demon, who has the boon. Um. That whenever he speaks, uh, the demon is called Madan. Whenever he speaks, he has he has acquired Vaksidi, which means that whatever he says comes true, and so he uses this, misuses this, of course, to <clears throat> to be destructive and to be murderous and to trouble humans. So Bagalamukhi basically paralyzes his tongue, okay, and, and then kills him. Um, okay, the color yellow here. I'm just reading some associations here. It has to do with the sun. Has to do with gold, the earth, grain, and fire. Okay, so here's another. Now that's interesting. It has to do with fire, although her weapon is water, um, uh, signifying auspiciousness, bountifulness, and purity. The yellow turmeric, because if we all know turmeric as a the spice, is actually a, a yellow co- and yellow color, uh, is associated with marriage, um, which is why, in case of Baglamukhi, she was known as Petambara Devi. Okay, so Kuspetambara has to do with the color yellow, but we also see Brahmi. So she was one of the Mahavidyas. Now among the Mantrikas, we see Brahmi riding her swan uh, and representing the color yellow with her um, rather orthodox um, iconography and associations. So um, okay, so let's let's think about so so there's there's what we you know so we can see that kind of reference. Um, you know, you, you have this idea of of growth, and if you think about her as being associated with Jupiter, Jupiter has to do usually, um, astrologically at least, Jupiter has to do with expansion, okay? It has to do with expanding outwards, um, you know, um, again, expanding one's world, expanding one's knowledge of the world. Um, learning which kind of makes sense because if you think about brahma as a creator and if you think of brahmi as the creative energy what does creativity require it requires that we think differently about things right if you're going to create something new you have to think about it you have to um you know put put some kind of thought into it um <clears throat> and you know, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, think outside the box as they, as they say, you know, when, when you're, when you're being truly innovative and creative, you're making something new. Now, maybe you are, maybe you are copying something that's there, but there, there still requires a sense of skill, of attention to detail, of, um, you know, of, of dexterity. There, are, there's all kinds of things that go into creativity, depending on what kind of creativity you're talking about. Now, um, I think it's, um, what's interesting is the, this association with Saraswati and study and learning, okay? Um, and this may also, I also feel like her, the symbolism of the rosary plays into this as well, because the rosary is for chanting mantra. Now, mantra is a sound, okay? We've talked about, um, we talked about mantras in the intro to Tantra. Um, you know, there's seed mantras, there's Gayatri mantras, there's, um, you know uh there's and you know the um stotra mantras you know which are the sort of the um how how do they uh, how do they describe it it's basically the namavali it's the you know you know you know Om devi namaha you know it's the you know i bow to that kind of a mantra um, and that may be made up of deity names seed mantras you know whatever whatever it is but the, the one of the fundamental ideas when you talk about the creation of the universe in in Hinduism, okay? Now, first of all, Hinduism, uh, the Rig Veda says that the universe came out of nothing, okay? Those of you who believe that, who keep pointing to Adam and Eve and and stories like it as having to do with religious ideas of creation of the world, guess what? In Hinduism, the the universe comes out of nothing, so there, okay? Um, In fact, hang on one second, I have the reference to that. I may have read this before, so apologies if I have, but... Um. I know I see the book up here on my shelf. And let me find the creation myth. Um, This is a translation, by the way, from a book called Parallel Myths. Um, Here we go. Uh, Thoughts of Brahma. Here we go. Creation Myths. So, the Rig Veda, when it comes to creation, says... uh, It's called the Nasadiya, or there was not... Um, this is a hymn cre- uh, contained in the ancient scriptures, the Rigveda. Veda, source of this. They said this, this particular one came from the textual sources for the study of Hinduism. And so I'll read you this translation. There was neither non-existence nor existence then. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky which is beyond. What stirred where? In whose protection? Was there water bottomlessly, bottomlessly deep? There was neither death nor immortality then. There was no distinguishing sign of night or day. That one breathed windless by its own impulse. Other than that, there was nothing beyond. Darkness was hidden by darkness in the beginning. There was no distinguishing sign. All this was water. Okay, that's actually similar to some other myths. The life force that was covered with emptiness, the one that, that one arose through the power of heat. Uh, desire came upon that one in the beginning. That was the first seed of mind. Now, that's similar to the idea of Ar- Eros being one of the... Um, you know, origin, uh, original forces out of chaos in Greek uh, creationist myth. Um, poets seeking in their heart with wisdom found the bond of existence and non existence. Their accord was extended across. Was there below? Was there above? There were seed placers. There were powers. There was impulse beneath. There was giving forth above. Who really knows? Who will here proclaim it? Whence was it produced? Whence is this creation? The gods came afterward with the creation of the universe. Who then knows whence it had arisen, whence this creation has arisen? Perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows, or perhaps he does not know. Okay, so interesting um, Vedic hymn there. Um, Because the implication there is that, um, yeah, we, we, we don't know where the universe came from. And they talk about the idea of kind of light and heat and, and, you know, there's some certain kinds of forces that that move things. But they're not suggesting, they're suggesting that, you know, forces came together and somehow this universe came together, maybe of its own volition, maybe another way. But there's no claim there that that God made the universe, okay? Um, Worlds are created by Brahma. Uh, The way that that works is usually that Vishnu is, is sleeping, um, on the ocean of consciousness, um, a lotus grows out of his navel. Out of that lotus, um, Brahma arises, and um, you know, he, and you know, Brahma lives in on, on that. And then, um, you know, so the lotus opens. There's Brahma, Brahma, and Brahma through his thoughts creates a world. Okay, and mind you, it's now now. Here's the important part: it's through his thoughts. Okay. Now, how are thoughts expressed? Well, they can be expressed in images, they can be expressed in stories, and they can be expressed, you know, and, and of course more fundamentally in words. Okay, so the idea of the mantra, um, there's, a, there's a prayer called the um, Maheshwara Sutras, okay? And this, those are um, associated with Shiva, okay? Because there is a myth associating Shiva with the formation of language. There's the idea that the world was entirely in silence and that Shiva is the one who brought the, um, you know, through. You know, the, you have these this wonderful um, singing of this sutra with with drums and sounds like thunder and lightning as as, as Shiva um, brings forth the, the letters of the Sanskrit alphabet, which are recited. Um, and I'm not. I, I could recite them for you now. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get one wrong. I could try it. What is it? It's ayun ruruk iu ayau chayavaret, this is the part where I jump over. Lun I'm going to miss that you know dash hashasar, hol something like that. I'm screwing it up. I'd have to actually have them in front of me to get them all right. But roughly that's the that's sort of the um, a crappy rendition of the sound of it. So it that's, um. so there's yeah, so there's the Maheshwara sutras. Um, and there is, um, I think Pandit Jasraj has a really wonderful recording of that. I think you can actually download it like through iTunes or find it on the internet. So um, that's, but that's, that's a really, that, that's a wonderful thing to listen to like during Shivaratri or, or even though that's not really the myth conveyed for Shivaratri, it doesn't matter, it's associated with Shiva. So, um, so yeah, so the Maheshwara Sutras and the implication there is that, um you know, life and creation and creative force comes from language. It comes from sound, more fundamentally from sound. That's why, for instance, in meditation, the sound om is so important. Okay. It represents the fullness of the universe, ah, u, m, and then silence. Okay. There's this, this sort of, um, it has to do with, um, this sort of vibration of things as they are. And, uh, and if you think about it, when you put the put sounds together, what our lives and what our consciousness is made up of is story, okay? Um, this, by the way, is why mythology is so important. Because, um, you know, when I when I have students take me, out, they're like, yeah, right, I get to hear about a bunch of boring friggin' gods from, you know, ancient... No, actually, these are stories that are foundational to your whole experience in the world. And, and how you see things. Um, one of the questions that's come up recently is the whole idea of, um, okay, like after we've had the incidents with um, uh, George Floyd and and the protests and the riots, um, you're seeing a lot of of, of changes. You're seeing um, this idea of, of taking away names and things that, that are clearly references to uh, you know things we've taken for granted that are references to actually really horrible things so for instance um like the aunt jemima brand it's funny i opened my cabinet this morning i'm trying to clear out stuff in my my kitchen cabinet and i'm going oh my god i still have aunt jemima syrup in there i gotta get <laughs> I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna get rid of that you know just use it up um but it's you know but but the iconography there You know, the, you know, the old slave mammy who, you know, makes you these wonderful pancakes, you know, and people actually saying, oh, but that's, that's what gave me a comforting image of black people, really? Okay. See what I mean? There's, there's a story behind it. All right. And you may say, I don't care. I just, you know, I I don't, I don't care about the story. Yeah, but the story affects you. That's why there's, that's why branding is so um, important and why it's significant. You know, the brand, whether or not you are, you are drawn to that brand psychologically whether the images and the words connected with it draw you in um you know uh, there, there's been discussions of old folk songs that we've taken for for granted that we learned as kids you know and suddenly you realize hey wait a minute these were minstrel songs these were these were things that were meant to sort of you know uh these were songs about slavery or these were songs about um black people you know they were they were just you realize and you go oh god um i had no idea. you know you just had no idea what the context was for the story. And um, most people would argue, oh, yeah, well, you know, yeah, but that was just, you know, nobody thinks about that now. Well, here's the thing. What you think about it and and what it represents are two different things. You don't have to consciously th- sit here and think, oh, wow, this is a song about slavery. Like, you, you don't have to have that conscious thought. The repeating of it um, is still...
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Uh,
1: you know, there, there's still a, um, a, a felt subtext there. And, you know, white people may not notice it, but, um, you know, black people who have some kind of awareness of it certainly do. And it's, you know, and, and the more you start to see these things in the culture, you more, the more you start to realize, hey, wait a minute, there's this hidden story in our culture. And the whole point is that you want to change the story. This is why the story has to be pointed out, because words are powerful, okay? And this is why, you know, like, okay, the Washington Redskins, they're changing their name, okay? Because Redskins is a very offensive um, reference to Native Americans. And they're, they, they're planning on changing. People are going, oh, but it's the name of the—no, there's, there's an association there, and there's a story attached to it. Um, which might be a stereotype that, you know, you might just say, yeah, well, it's a stereotype and stereotypes exist. Well, on one hand, that may be true. On the other hand, when they become the basis for defining people or defining what their rights are or defining their place in society, that's a problem. So you have to be very careful about story um and that's why paying attention to stories even very old stories is important and you want to look for and even though anthropologists hate it when people look for patterns they try to say no each culture is unique they have their own thing yeah okay that's I'm, I'm not discounting or denying that but by the same token you you do kind of want to look at what are the what are the underlying messages there um that we as humans are telling ourselves about life and existence and about how things are and about how people are Um, Part of the reason I do this podcast is because we're, again, we're amplifying, we're exploding these things in a way that we can look at what's behind them, because sometimes the things that you think are, um, that are either, well, either they're alien to you in some way or you have a negative association with them may not be so negative, and there's also things you may have a positive association with that maybe are not so positive, so you, you want to be aware of this because, um, because that's the only way that you can potentially alter or change that story or just get rid of it entirely and write a new one, okay? There's your creative element. So what you know all of this, this has to do with Brahmi. It has to do with language as, as the basis of creation, okay? So that is, that is important. Um, now, okay, so, we, so we're talking about that. We've talked about the color yellow. Um, water. Okay, pouring water on someone or something. Um, now we can look at that. Excuse me a moment. Um, I just. Uh, I, I'm. I'm trying to avoid. Uh, you know, when I have, you know, sometimes I, I have these things with with my breath. Um, I've always had them. It's not not anything new. Um, and I don't want to, and sometimes when I breathe funny, I get like a funny tick on the microphone and I've, I've had certainly had enough people in comments tell me about it. So I, I'm trying to do different things to try to avoid it. I don't think I've been a hundred percent successful, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do better with that. Um, okay. Water. What is water? So if you pour water on somebody, if you think about somebody who's real hot to do something and then somebody quote unquote pours cold water on you. Okay. In one sense, that's a dose of reality. Okay. That's a dose of, um, you know you're you may be you may have your head in the clouds you may not be being realistic so pouring water on you kind of is supposed to kind of wake you up from a dream as it were you know like you're 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 in a sleep or a stupor you jump into the shower and you you know the water hits you and now you're awake right so so there's that aspect of pouring water on something um now again there's that fiery reference but oftentimes you know pouring water water is life giving but if water is used in a um as a means of death okay so how, how does how does water kill well through drowning right um when you drown something uh that's that is that is a deadly aspect of water and so what what do we think of when we think of drowning well we think of floods okay you might think of floods we might think of tsunamis or hurricanes um or other kinds of um, natural disasters which have you know tremendous amounts of water Um, I always get scared of when there's a a combination of a lot of water and no electricity because I'm not convinced my backup sump pump works. Um, It seems like every time the power goes out, I hear it beeping like it's not charged up. And I'm like, what the hell? That should have been charged up. I put two different batteries in it. Anyway, that's nothing to do with this. But yes, but water, okay? Water as a destructive force. Um, And water, as we can see, like I said, if if you've lived through hurricanes and things, you know that it can, you know tear roofs off things and knock trees down. And I mean, that's the wind too, I suppose. But, but nonetheless, there's like this violent force, um, that can, um, that can be destructive. So, you know, so you have this idea of, um, you know, okay, flood mythology. Okay. What happens with the flood? You know, um, either, you know, depending on which version of the myth you're following, in the more um, Sumerian and Babylonian versions of the flood myth, um, it's more like, you know, God, we created all these mortals, there's too many of them. And it's almost like, you know, when people try, you talk about the badger cull or the deer hunt, it's like, yeah, we got to cull because there's too many of them. So basically, um, um, it's, uh, I think it's Enki, the god Enki. Much, I, I always get Enki and Enlil confused in my mind. But in any case, they, you know, one, it says, well, we're going to send this big storm and we're going to wipe humanity out. But of course, um, there's two, uh, you know, always two humans that are warned. In this case, it was uh, Atrahasis or Unapishtim. Well, Unapishtim became his name after he survived the flood. But he, so him and his wife um, go inside a chest or a boat or something, and then they float for X number of days. And then um, when the, the waters settle again, they're, they're left. Um, the Greeks have a version of this myth called Deucalion and, and Pyra, Pyra and Deucalion, sorry. And in that myth, um, Zeus is displeased. This is during what they considered to be, what Hesiod considered to be the Bronze Age. Um, they all, uh, you know, Zeus thought that people, you know, they weren't properly worshipping the gods. They were corrupt, you know, so more human, humankind was corrupt. So he decides he's going to wipe humankind out. But Deucalion and Pyrrha, um, because they're warned by Prometheus, um, who's, um, you know, because Deucalion is actually... Uh, The, believe he, okay, I think he's Prometheus' son, and then Pyrrha is Epimetheus, his brother's um, daughter. So she's not always as, you know, Epimetheus is not on the ball, Prometheus is, okay? So, um, Prometheus, anyway, warns them about the coming flood, and so they, um, again, get in a little chest or a boat, and they survive. Now, after the flood's over, they, um, they're standing there in a world where nothing's left. You know, after the waters recede, it's just the two of them. And they're mournful for the loss. So um, what happens is um, they, there's a temple of Themis, you know, the goddess of order. That's still like the remains of a temple. So they go in and they, they make supplications to Themis. And they said, you know, can please tell us how, you know, how we can repopulate the world. And Themis is moved by their prayers and says, um, uh, throw the bones of your mother behind you. And of course, Pyrrha, who has the more epimethial thinking, kind of goes, oh, well, I, I can't, I couldn't desecrate my mother's grave, you know, and, and, but Dekalian goes, mm, something else. So they're thinking about it. Wait, the mother is the mother earth. Um, the rocks would be her bones. So they pick up rocks and start throwing them over their shoulder and human beings start popping up as they do that. Okay. So that's how the world is repopulated in that version of the myth. The biblical version is the one that everybody knows with Noah and the Ark, okay? Again, that one comes much later than the Babylonian and the other ones. The Greek one might be roughly contemporary, but the uh, there's this idea of a flood. Now, in the biblical version, it's because, again, because not only is humankind corrupt, but they've made it with angels and created a race of giants. Yeah, I'll bet you missed that in Genesis, okay? <laughs> it is in there. And I remember one of my students coming up to me. She's like, I went to Catholic school. I studied, but I don't remember this. So I opened up the Bible, and I showed her the part, and she just went, holy crud, I'd never thought, you know? She's like, I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's not. it doesn't tend to be emphasized, because in, in a world where we where people try to read the Bible in a very rationalistic sense, which I think is the wrong way to read it, okay, that's just my opinion. I'm sure there are theologians who will uh, very adamantly disagree with me. I mean, I suppose there's parts of the Bible that you can read rationalistically or or meant to be. But um, people tend to take it too much as, like, a book handed down by God about how to live. It's like, yeah, that's not really quite what it is. Um, So um, it's—I mean, you could get things out of there about how to live, but it's it's not—they're not— they're not straightforward necessarily, necessarily stated in the most straightforward way, which is the way story and metaphor and myth work. By the way, they're not they're not direct. Just like if you have a dream, it's it's not di- usually there's no voice directly telling you like what your unconscious mind. You have a dream full of weird symbols or people appear, and you oh, what's going on, you know? And, and then it's like you have to interpret. Okay, so this is why you have oracles. You know, people they have symbols, people interpret. You know, generally it's like there's there's multiple meanings to these things, and and they're not that straightforward. So, but floods tend to represent renewal, okay? They tend to mean, and so again, you have this idea of water wiping out corruption, okay? Um, Wiping out um, and and being able to start over, okay? That the drowning of the flood um, allows for um, a, a rebirth of kinds, so, so you have this element of it as well um, in Brahmi's um, pouring of water, and she's pouring it from a holy vessel, from from either the beggar's pot. So it, it, so again, there's kind of that symbolism there of the way in which thought, which the way in which thought can get out of control. By the way, I mean it's good, you know, language and words and reading and, and study is all good. You can get out of control with that too. People, and that's where the vice of pride comes in, because you can become very proud of just how much smarter you are than everybody else, and um, and really what it is is that maybe, you know, no, no nobody knows everything. There's always something to be learned, and um, you can... You know, humility tends to go away if you think that you know too much. So, uh, and, and like I said, all the book learning in the world does not replace experience. And certainly when it comes to spiritual experience, words don't actually mean anything because now you're moving into a field that's not about labels, that it's not about separation, that's not about measurement. Um, and I should note in this case, mathematics is also a language, okay? These are all languages that we try to make sense of and understand things, but there are things that are understood that are beyond language too. So that's that's another thing to consider. It's um and that's where, because when we are are too attached to that, then we kind of have a sense of pride. Um, it's what Carl Jung meant when he had said that um you know religion gets in the way of a religious experience, okay um it's or it's what's the last barrier to religion experience. Your image of God is your last barrier because you're stuck on the image and you need to let the image go at some point. You know, you have the image to help you connect. At some point, or as my guru would say, it's like the, the image is like a ladder that you climb. At some point, you get off the ladder, okay? And you move into whatever space you're moving into, okay? But it's not, um, there's language and there's what's beyond language, okay? So, so that's where, so that can be the extreme of it. That can be the, the pride aspect of it. But the water represents, the destructive water can represent um, the need to... Um, to cleanse all of that away and generally the crime that's committed there is is one of um a a few you know one of either trying to be as great as the gods or better than the gods and typically this is what the ashuras are doing they're trying to make a complete power grab for themselves at the expense of the gods so um and, and you need you need both elements um so you have to be aware that this 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 exercise and purification. I mean, it always brings. It should bring about a renewal. It just should get rid of that which is no longer helpful or necessary. Okay. Um, now I'm looking at my time here. I'm thinking I started this podcast um, about 42 minutes ago, so I probably should wrap up soon. Um. So I just want to uh, just see if I have any other notes here that I want to share with you, because um, we've talked about we've talked about flood. Um water is you know sort of the purification, and yeah, I think um, I've, I've I've covered all of these things the, the passivity, like the the, stand, the standing at a distance, the yellow being associated with abundance and expansion, and the idea of Jupiter or Braspati um, you know representing that, um, and water as kind of a purifying influence of getting rid of that which no longer serves, okay, and getting rid of that which has become corrupted in some fashion so this is you know so this is how brahmi as the shakti of brahma how it operates okay um there's the creation in the world there's the need for mantra and language and speech and so forth but then there's also there's needs to cleanse oneself of that to get what's beyond it okay uh the truth that's beyond it um and that, that's a truth that's very—I that it, I don't want to say it's impossible to express in words, but it's nearly impossible. It's why you need poetry, okay? We tend to think of everything in a very prosaic way. And that was Campbell's criticism, by the way, of most uh, biblical um, hermeneutics and theology was that you're reading the Bible as prose, not as poetry, okay? Because oftentimes it's what's implied, it's not what's directly stated, and that's, that's the thing that we tend to miss because we tend to analyze things to a point. Our scientific mindset makes us um, dissect, dissect things to the point that, you know, it's like, you know, you've taken the frog and you ripped all its organs out. You don't really have a frog anymore. You just have a bunch of parts, you know. Um, it, the, you know, the, the parts function as a whole, and we tend to think of everything in terms of their separate components rather than letting go of that idea and focusing on working as a whole. That's the emptiness, too, by the way, of the pot or of the beggar's pot. The idea that you have emptied yourself of the idea that all these separate things have a reality. There's a, there's kind of a single reality behind it. It's like saying, you know, I'm a little wave on the ocean and I'm the only, you know, and then let's, let's focus on this wave. And then the individual thing of that wave and that wave, when actually each wave by itself is not, you know, the power comes from the force of the ocean as a whole. Okay. So it's, it's this idea of letting go of your, your little struggles and your little power and, um, you know merging yourself with that which is the the other while at the same time recognizing that you know you are a facet of that or that you may have a role to play it's not that um you know where 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 the crime typically comes in and i think actually in western myth and religion that's the that's the crime too the crime of hubris people say oh people thinking that they're better than the gods um, really what that comes down to is thinking that you as the individual by yourself. And, and by the way, this seems to be a, this is a big problem in the U S and in U S thinking for sure, the idea that you as the individual matter more than the whole. Um, and that's, that's where the problem comes in because that's when things start to fall apart. Everybody can't, you know, it's John Dunn, no man is an Island, you know, um, everybody, everybody has to function you know, you, ha- you are unique, and you have your own gifts and talents and, you know, authentic things that you bring to the table, and yes, you should be allowed to be a free person to express them, but the only way you can do that is by honoring the whole. You know, your power comes from the whole. It doesn't come from individual efforts, you know what I mean? I mean, individual efforts are important, you know, but everybody has to make them, and when they don't, and they frequently don't, um, that's when you kind of have this division and this, this kind of struggle. So, um, so the whole is as important as, you know, the whole is more than the sum of its parts. Let's put it that way. So on that note, I think I'm going to end for this particular episode. Um, and I would like to remind you uh, to please subscribe if you are on YouTube and press the bell notification, uh, to get, uh, to the Cothonia channel. If you want to, um, get notified about when new podcasts come out, which are roughly every couple of weeks. And I sometimes have new videos, um, if you'd like to support my work, patreon.com slash Um I have that. I, I try to do more free, frequent updates. Uh, time really gets away from me, so I probably don't update people as often as I think I should, um, and I want to have some more um, special videos and things for, for Patreon subscribers, so I'm, I'm kind of working on what I can do there. Um, you can also read about the other work that I do, both um, academic and uh, fictional works that I would have, that are basically connected to this theme. And I also have a site called LiminalReiki.com where I do um, uh, both Reiki and and I use tarot and other systems um, as as kind of a holistic thing. Again, symbolic interpretation. Let's see what's going on with somebody. You know, sometimes I use astrological charts. I use different things to help a person see what's going on with them, you know, that maybe they have a hard time identifying. Maybe they're in the gap between things. And I use Reiki as a rebalancing tool. And I've I've actually mastered a... um, Distance Reiki technique, um, which I can do over Zoom because we're still in COVID time. It's still somewhat risky, especially for somebody like me um, working independently to bring people into my house to do it. Um, I would eventually like to go back to doing that again. But but I can also do a distance Reiki that can help with specific problems um, and also help with that rebalancing. Um, and I've, 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 I've done tests on it and, and it does it does um, have an effect it does have you know, a, a positive effect and if you go to liminalreiki.com to the testimonials page you can see uh, feedback on how people feel about both my readings and the Reiki sessions so, um, so there's that and so you'll be hearing more about that and I'm hoping to do I'm, I haven't been inspired to do a liminal tarot video recently but hopefully I will do another one again soon um, and that's about it for me for now, uh, social media, subscribe to Cothonia podcast, um, two words on Facebook, um, one word on, uh, Twitter and Instagram. And, um, you know, and I thank all of you who listen and who continue to listen and continue to support and then all of you who have, you know, started following me on Twitter and in different places and have, have, uh, retweeted and promoted different things. I thank you very much and, um, hope to see you all at the next episode.